0: What is up, freaks? It's your boy, Marty Bent, here to introduce RIP. 350. 350. Nice, even number. I sat down with Professor Emeritus at Princeton University, Dr. William Happer, who's had a long career uh, in government and in physics combating the climate hysteria that exists in our world. Uh, Very... Interesting conversation filled with a lot of wisdom. I feel honored to have been able to sit down with Dr. Happer and have this particular conversation. I think you freaks are going to really like it. It could push a lot of buttons, especially if you are uh, one of those individuals who's fallen prey to the climate hysteria and thinks that the world is going to end if we don't make drastic changes uh, in regards to our our consumption of fossil fuels. Uh, Dr. Happer makes the case that CO2 is good. It's good for the planet, it's good for plants, it's good for humanity in the long run. Uh, so if you are a bit skeptical of that, I, I highly encourage you not to tune out and to listen to what Dr. Happer had to say during our conversation. This rip was brought to you by our good friends at Unchained Capital. I usually say they're right down the hall from me here at the Bitcoin Commons in Austin, Texas, but I'm not in the Commons in Austin, Texas, I'm in New Jersey. But Unchained Capital still there. And they're still producing products that allow you to eliminate single points of failure in your custody model. Uh, we've seen a lot of people fall prey to single points of failure in their custody model, particularly uh, with centralized exchanges and lending platforms where individuals will give them their Bitcoin and then they'll lend it out, rehypothecate on the back end to traders, hedge funds, like three hours capital who completely just set it on fire. Uh, and you wake up one day and you don't have Bitcoin, you don't have access to it. Unchain helps you there. Uh, this is personified uh, or exemplified, is the correct term I'm looking for. Exemplified in their vault product, which is a two or three multi sig. You hold two keys, Unchain holds one. You always have access to your Bitcoin as long as you have those two keys. If you're ever in a pinch, you only have access to one. Unchain is there to be the second in the two or three multi sig quorum. Uh, they have a white glove concierge team. It's going to answer all your questions, walk you through how the product works, how multisig works. They're going to get you hardware wallets. Go to unchained.com slash concierge to get set up with their Vault product. Uh, if you're a business high net worth individual, I highly recommend you use this service. I use it myself personally for the business. Um, uh, it's it's an incredible product, incredible team. Building on Bitcoin the correct way. This was also brought to you by good friends at Brains. Breaking news! It's not going to be breaking when you listen to this episode because we're posting this a few days after we recorded it. But looks like Brains is uh, going to stop supporting Zcash mining on their pool. It's very interesting. They're going full Bitcoin only. They've been supporting Zcash since it launched, but decided, hey, it's not worth it anymore. We're going to go Bitcoin only. Not only are we going to do that, we're going to continue building uh, tools and firmware for Bitcoin miners so that they can run their operations more efficiently and stack more sats at the end of the day. Did you know that Brains produces idiot-proof firmware? This is their Brains OS Plus firmware, and it idiot-proofs your mining operation because you have, if you have ASICs that are compatible with Brains OS Plus firmware and you download it, you're gonna stack more sats. If you don't download it, you're gonna stack less sats, and only idiots decide to stack less sats. So idiot-proof your mining operation and download Brains OS Plus firmware, Go to Brains, that's B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com. Check out the firmware. Check out Brains Insights. Check out Brains Pool. Switching from Slush Pool to Brains Pool at the end of this month. Uh, Go check it all out, Brains.com. This trip was also brought to you by our good friends at Hoddle Hoddle is here to bring you a lending platform. It's no KYC, no AML. It's peer-to-peer. It leverages Bitcoin's native multi-sig properties and allows you to have the confidence And the assurity that your sats aren't being rehypothecated when you enter into a loan, what you do is you put your Bitcoin up in a two or three multi-sig quorum. You hold one key, your counterparty in the loan holds another key, and then HODL HODL holds the third key. Uh, Since you have one key, you have visibility into that two or three multi-sig escrow account, and you know that your sats aren't being rehypothecated. You put Bitcoin up as collateral, you get stable coins in return. As long as you're paying back that loan plus interest, you are going to get your sats back at the end of the day. Go to lend.hodlhodl.com. Last but not least, upstream data. Incredible company. I'm a happy customer. Uh, I I have one of their 50-kilowatt hash shuts. It's running up in Tennessee off of natural gas, stranded well. It's been running flawlessly since I plugged it in. Uh, No downtime outside of oil changes to the generator. Uh, And it is exemplary of the quality product that Upstream is putting out there. And they have products for everybody in the mining spectrum, whether you're an at-home miner who's using your uh, electricity that's coming through your house to mine Bitcoin, they have the black box for you. It allows you to put a couple miners in, uh, and it controls sound and heat. Uh, The sound, if you've mined before, can be a bit loud and can put a strain on relationships, marriages. Um, So Upstream has come in. Swooped in to save your marriage, save your relationship with the black box. You put the miners in, you close the lid and the sound gets reduced significantly. On top of that, it controls uh, the heat. It's got good airflow in there. So you're not going to burn out your miners. Uh, if you want to get a black box, if you want to mine at home, use the code FREAKS, F-R-E-A-K-S. You're going to get 5% off your black box. Uh, if you want to get miners, Upstream is there to help you as well. It can help you acquire miners, so put in that black box. And then again, with their hash huts, they have a slew of different sizes. I use a 50 kilowatt hash hut. I believe they just released 180 kilowatt hash hut, and they also have a 900 kilowatt hash hut. So whether you're uh, an individual like myself mining off a small stranded natural gas well or a large oil and gas producer that's <coughs> using a lot of gas upstream to mine Bitcoin, upstream data is here for you. They'll get you the huts, they'll get you the generators, they'll get you the miners. Go to upstreamdata.ca. If you're in the oil industry... Sitting on some fat profits, ASIC prices are pretty low. Could be a good time to diversify into mining. Enjoy this, red freaks.
1: Okay. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all all the central banks going nuts.
0: So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that. In a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor.
1: I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. probably should be. probably
0: should be. Dr. Happer, thank you uh, for joining me today. We're both in the great state of New Jersey.
1: Well, thanks very much, Marty. It's a pleasure to chat with you.
0: Well, I'm very excited. Uh, to be speaking with you because uh, I don't, I'm not sure if you're aware, but uh, I operate within the Bitcoin space, and more particularly, Bitcoin mining. And Bitcoin mining has been demonized throughout the years for using too much energy uh, and contributing to what many would deem to be a climate crisis. Uh, and I was introduced to you by uh, somebody that we both know who said, "Hey, Marty, you need to talk to Dr. Happer uh, about." the quote-unquote climate crisis because he's been educating the world to the best of his abilities for for quite some time now that this may be more of a hysteria instead of a crisis. So I'm extremely happy that you uh, agreed to join me here today to go over this subject because it's been a big one in the space that I operate within. And uh, here at TFTC, we look to combat a lot of these bad narratives that exist out there. So I guess we can just open up the conversation with: uh, Is the world currently in a climate crisis?
1: No, Marty. Of course, it's not in a climate crisis. <clears throat> it's uh, very similar to the uh, the witch crisis in the 1690s in Salem. You know, it uh, it's a mass hysteria, and uh, they're true believers. Uh, you know, decent people who've been misled, and then they're opportunists. Uh, Uh, that's always in the mix of something like this and uh but there is no crisis the climate is uh, doing what it has always done the climate is always changing sometimes it warms a little sometimes it cools uh it's true that uh carbon dioxide which is emitted by uh burning fossil fuels and also we breathe it out it's true that that is a greenhouse gas and uh Will cause some warming, but the, it's a quantitative question. The warming will be trivial. It won't matter. And so it will cause very tiny warming. If you double CO2, 100% increase, you only decrease the thermal radiation to space by 1%. And so the earth knows how to compensate for that. It doesn't have to warm very much to bring solar heating and uh, thermal cooling back into balance. uh, A degree or less is probably all that will happen, which you will hardly notice. Uh, You know, my air conditioner cycles up and down every two degrees in my home, I don't notice it. And so we're certainly not gonna notice one degree of warming. And the only thing it's likely to do is make the world a better place than it is today because it will The warming will be mostly at higher latitudes, you know, nearer to the poles. There will be hardly any warming in in equatorial regions. So they'll stay about the same temperature they already are. And Canada, Siberia will get a little bit warmer. Patagonia will get a little bit warmer. What's wrong with that?
0: (laughs) Well, we're we're led to believe that that's going to lead to the the seawaters rising and all the coastal cities are going to flood out. Is this true?
1: No, of course not. I mean, first of all, sea level will not rise if there's small warming. You know, the scare stories about sea level rise are based on these uh, completely unrealistic models that have already failed. They, they're they predicting much more warming factors of two or three, or even four more than we're observing. Uh, and so if the warming is what we're observing sea level rise is not going to change much sea level has been rising since about 1800 at about the same rate and uh, most of that is due to the recovery from the little ice age that extended for several centuries from say 1400 to 1800 and uh, has nothing to do with burning fossil fuels and it's not very much it's it's about uh, two or three millimeters a year, depending on where you are, you know, where you are on the Jersey shore, I would guess it's probably about two and a half millimeters, uh, a year, you know, multiply that by a hundred (laughs) years. What do you get? 25 centimeters. It's less than a foot. So it is, you know, the tide where you are is uh, quite a bit more than one foot, you know, between high tide and low tide. And, you know, if, if that, uh, is going to bother you you know you've really uh been conned into buying you know underwater property <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah no i've been coming to this island for i'm 31 years old every year of my life and just observationally i haven't noticed anything uh too I jarring well, in terms well you of shouldn't because rise. the
1: effects are so small they're not changing there there is no real acceleration Sea level rise speeds up and slows down a little bit from time to time decade to decade. And uh, no one quite knows what causes that, but it is completely normal. It has nothing to do with mankind. Well,
0: you mentioned well-intentioned people who have been misled and opportunists who are taking advantage of these well-intentioned people. What are the tactics that are used to mislead? I mean, it seems like most of the world now uh, if you pay attention to mainstream media and, and discourse amongst uh, many of my peers, people do honestly believe that we're in a climate crisis and we need to act aggressively and as quickly as possible to reduce our uh, hydrocarbon usage to save the planet. W- what are the tactics used by the opportunists to, to lead so many people astray?
1: Well, of course, uh, the most uh uh effective tactic is repetition and repetition and repetition that was something that you know all uh totalitarian states understand very well. Goebbels used it in Nazi Germany you know the Soviets used it in the Soviet Union our media uses it in our country you know to push you know this uh meme or that you know that is a convenient. You know, for their masters. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry to be so crude, but uh, in in fact, that's the way it's going. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's... most uh, people can't. You know, there's no way that the average person can uh, really evaluate what's said about climate because they don't have a training in physics. I mean, even the average scientist doesn't know anything about climate. They don't know any more than you do about climate. You know, uh, and it's it's quite complicated. You know the uh, CO2 is spread between the ground and, you know, 40,000, 50,000 uh, uh, feet and, and higher. And uh, it uh, the temperature varies all over the place between the ground and these altitudes. And uh, so figuring out what doubling CO2 will do is not straightforward. The average person can't do that. So they have to take the word of some so-called expert but i'm an expert and i can tell you it doesn't do very much <laughs> <It's> <laughs> not a big deal uh,
0: well well doing research for this interview i was looking up just stories about yourself and watching many presentations you've given throughout the past and looking on twitter what people have said about you've been pretty villainized uh in the whole conversation around climate change uh, so what is what is your journey been like specifically like how did you come to focus on this problem and combating the misinformation out there and what's it been like having to put up with everybody who uh, is calling you um, for lack of a better term a quack that is misleading people yourself
1: well actually uh, I got uh, to know a little bit about climate when I headed the office of energy research in the early 90s I was brought in to direct that office and department of energy uh by bush senior and uh so i had a big basic research budget which included a lot of money for climate but it was also money for high energy physics money for controlled fusion for plasma physics for material science even for the human genome and so i uh wanted to be sure that I understood at least a little bit about all these fields. I hadn't paid much attention to climate before then. And I had people that we supported come in once a week on some field or another and brief me and my associate directors at Department of Energy on the research they were doing that we were paying for. And most of the uh, invitees were absolutely thrilled that some Washington bureaucrat Cared what they were doing, you know. They, they spent most of their time worrying about next year's budget, and here's somebody who hands out the money who would like to hear from them. And so uh, that was fun. They they came in, and almost all of them gave very good presentations. It was informal. It was uh, question and answer, so they were frequently interrupted, and they liked that. And. Uh, like to get into the details, but there was one exception. The exception was the uh, climate community, and uh, the first thing that would happen is when they would get this invitation to come in. Uh, I remember one of them told my chief of staff, uh, "Well, we work for Senator Gore. Uh, you know, you'll have to ask him." I said, "Well, you better check your contract. Uh, you know, for the money." You know, I'm, I signed it, not Senator Gore. And if you want to get, put in an application to the senator, that's fine. But it, if you want to get, if you want to continue getting money from DOE, you're going to have to come in and brief us like everybody else. <laughs> so uh, I, I realized then there was something not right about climate science, so-called science. And uh, then these people would come and they would brief me. And my co-directors, and the briefings would always be very tense. And if you would ask a question like, you know, how did you calibrate this instrument? Which you ask everybody, you know, in the scientific field, how do you measure something? How do you know that it's uh, uh, the instrument is working right? Uh, they would get very defensive. Well, the answer would be, why do you want to know? Don't you trust us? I said, oh, no, you no. Know, I ask everybody, you know, how do you calibrate your intru- instruments? So there, there was this uh, secretive, defensive attitude, and so uh, naturally you begin to think, well, what, what are they hiding? <laughs> and uh, well, you know, as soon as uh, uh, the next presidential election came and Clinton and Gore were elected, the first thing Gore did was have me fired, uh, which was okay with me. I was. Eager to come back to Princeton, and he did me a favor. So I'm grateful to uh, Senator Gore for that. But uh, my new boss, uh, Hazel O'Leary, was uh, surprised she wanted me to stay because I really didn't meddle in the politics. Uh, You know, that was her job, that was uh, Gore's job, but I didn't like people meddling in my science either. (laughs) So I guess that's how I got started. And so When I came back, we were busy with many other things in my laboratory, and I didn't have a lot of time for a few years. But as I got older and closer to retirement, I had a little bit more time, and I started uh, looking more carefully into what was going on with climate, and I I didn't like what I saw. I saw lots of hype. I saw lots of, uh, uh, you know, twisting of data, twisting of facts, uh, and... uh, it's only gotten worse, you know, as the years have gone by.
0: Yeah. No, I've, I've had professor Steve Koonin on the show before, and he dove into the IPCC data and basically explained that people are taking that IPCC data and completely misrepresenting a lot of the conclusions that are in there and just going to the media and going to the public and saying, Oh my gosh, there's this crisis. But if anybody took the time to actually dive into the actual research and conclusions uh it doesn't really compute with what's being spun out in terms of a narrative in the mainstream media
1: well you know, see uh book Unsettled is a very good book and I highly recommend it if uh, any of your listeners have not read it uh get a copy uh you you will be surprised at how unsettled climate science really is uh and one, one thing that's very clear from the book is there's certainly not a climate emergency and there's unlikely ever to be a climate emergency. In fact, the only, <clears throat> only clear effect you can see from more CO2 is increases in agricultural production. Wheat, corn, soybean production is going up and a very major part of that is coming from more CO2. CO2 is plant food, it's really true. And uh, forestry is the same way. Forests are growing faster than they used to grow. And again, because of more CO2. You can take out factors like fertilizer or rainfall and stuff like that, and there's still this increase of productivity of photosynthetic life on Earth, which is starved for CO2. It needs even more CO2 than we have now. It would be a good thing if we doubled or tripled or quadrupled CO2 now. It would be no harm to anybody and it'd be an enormous benefit to agriculture and forestry
0: yeah i want to see uh a world of megafauna again and uh we need need more co2 to make that uh make that possible megaflora well,
1: the, the megafauna seem to be a, a feature of cold climates of ice ages and they uh, They don't do nearly as well in interglacials like ours today when when things are warmer. So we we lost most of the North American megafauna and much of megafauna in Asia, too, after the end of the last ice age.
0: Yeah, I think I confused fauna for flora there. I think I was thinking flora, right? More CO2. Well, you'll
1: definitely see more flora, especially in arid regions, because... uh, perhaps the most important uh, benefit of CO2 to land plants is that it makes them more drought resistant because uh, plants have to breathe in CO2 from the air through little holes in their leaves. And while CO2 is diffusing in through those holes for the plant to use, water vapor is diffusing out at a much higher rate. So plants typically need 100 grams of water to make a gram of carbohydrate, you know, because of these losses through the leaf, transpirational losses. And those are greatly reduced as you increase CO2 because plants are not stupid. They've been around for millions of years and they know that when there's more CO2, you simply grow leaves with less holes in them and then you'll be more resistant to drought because you don't lose as much water. And fewer holes works fine if there's more CO2 because you don't need as many little mouths to suck the co2 in if there's more of it on the outside so it's not very complicated and it's uh, very easily observed you you look at the greening of the earth now which you can see from satellites much of it is in semi-arid regions you know the Sahel western United States Western Australia
0: yeah yeah but again they would make you think uh, that the earth isn't greening they say we're having desert desertification of of the world play out we're having uh the great barrier reef uh die out uh but then when it starts to grow back like it has in the last four years and you have a professor in australia point that out he immediately gets fired from his university uh well, like you're,
1: you're talking about peter ridd who is a real hero uh, like me he's a physicist by training but he uh, has done a lot of work on the barrier reef because he's got a good quantitative bent. He knows how to measure things and knows how to do statistics right. And I just saw an op-ed that uh, he will publish soon, I hope, uh, that uh, this year the uh, coral on the Great Barrier Reef is record high. It's never been higher since records have been kept. They haven't been kept that long, you know, so presumably if we had even longer records, we would have seen higher levels in the past but since 1984 it's the highest it's ever been
0: yeah which again is just very perplexing why this narrative is being drilled into people's heads and i mean we're seeing the products of the narrative take hold and actually uh, become implemented in policy particularly around the extraction and use of hydrocarbons i think a lot of what we're seeing in Western Europe with Germany's problems, Uh, they're fading nuclear generation for less uh, reliable wind and solar, and they're depending on natural gas from Russia, which is becoming strained because of the war in Ukraine and the posturing of the West versus Russia. And on top of that, Sri Lanka decided to uh, change up the way that they used hydrocarbon-based fertilizers with their crops, and they're going through a terrible collapse in their crop production. Uh, And then here in the U.S., we have many people in our government beating the drum of the Green New Deal and trying to move the American economy away from hydrocarbons by the end of the decade, which just seems completely asinine. So as a physicist to help educate, anybody listening to this, how important are hydrocarbons to our our modern lifestyle? Why is there this push to, to move us from reliable sources of fuel like hydrocarbons or uranium to less reliable, less, more importantly, less dense sources like wind and solar?
1: Well, it, it's uh, ideology. Again, uh, I mean, we've had this kind of, fanaticism in human history many times the iconoclasts in Byzantium were sort of like that you know in my own ancestral country of Scotland we had the you know the one league and covenant which was uh, you know sort of uh over the top Puritans and uh caused a lot of damage there was similar movement in England and so these movements get started they're uh quasi-religious and uh the current one we're in, you know, uh, the climate one, uh, it has to have enemies, and uh, so the enemy is fossil fuels. But in fact, fossil fuels have let you and me and the average person in the world live a better life than the kings in the past could live. You know, we our lifespans are tremendously longer. Infant mortality has dropped to practically nothing. Uh, none of that was true uh, before we started using hydrocarbons extensively so the world runs on energy and uh, no one has found a better source of energy than oil and coal and natural gas perhaps we will find a better source but it won't be the current generation of wind and solar power which uh... are uh... not a good solution you can already see that in Germany, you can see that Texas uh, nearly lost its grid the last big ice storm. And, you know, I think of Texas as a pretty sober state, but they've overbuilt with wind and solar. And uh, so over much of the world, the energy supplies are getting less and less stable because of this jihad against fossil fuels. Um, Fossil fuels are... uh, You know, they're really uh, fossil sunlight. They were made by photosynthesis many millions of years ago. In the case of coal, it can be 300, 400 million years ago, really a long time ago, but made by sunlight and water and CO2. (laughs) So we're simply returning to the air some of the CO2 that was stripped out of it millions of years ago, and it's therefore made it harder for plants to grow now than it used to be for plants and so you know if you are a a photosynthesizing plant you get down on your knees every day and and uh, thank the Lord for fossil fuels or for the burning of fossil fuels they don't do you much good if they're in the ground but if people burn them then it's good for you 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 can grow better you don't need as much water everything about it is good from the point of view of a plant
0: yeah, yeah, it's it's utter insanity. And it, it's scary. As somebody, I'm 31, I've got two young sons, and watching all this unfold right in front of me as you have Joe Biden telling the oil and gas industry that they need to spin up refineries that are going to be shut down within a decade. Uh, it, it's, it's completely perplexing that we have people in power who are so either detached from the reality of the situation and the physics of what affords us our modern life or the nefarious push behind it. Uh, Because if you control energy, food, and mediums of communication, uh, you can control humans pretty pretty granularly. And uh, the conspiracy theorist in me uh, sometimes wanders into the realm of, are these people actively trying to uh, (laughs) enslave humanity by making us desperate because we don't have the lower substrates of Maslow's hierarchy of needs taken care of because they've been stripped away from us.
1: Well, I I think very few of them are evil. You know, there are always a few evil people around, but uh, I think most of the climate, uh, worriers are not evil people. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer studied this a lot. You know, he was, uh, one of the few courageous clergymen in Nazi Germany to resist the uh, Germans. And uh, he was eventually executed by the Nazis just before the Americans liberated the camp where he was uh, hung. But he concluded that, uh, at least in Germany, it wasn't that lots of Germans were evil. You know, they were ordinary people, not so different from me and you but that they were stupid, you know, and and so the the root cause was stupidity that people would not or or could not think for themselves, and so they get fed every day this propaganda and are unable to realize that it's simply propaganda. Bonhoeffer may be, he may have been onto something. I think another problem is the uh, easy life that we live. You know, if you look around, farmers, truck drivers, fishermen, you know, are typically not very worried about changing climate. You know, they live in the climate all the time. They see the weather, they've seen it since they were children, and they don't notice anything changing uh, and so most of the worry is from uh, the upper class the you know upper middle class the elites uh, who've never you know uh, been on a trawler or never you know hoed a row of corn or <laughs> plowed a row of corn so, so all they know about nature is what they see on their computer screens you know so they got a nice big Screen, maybe they've got a wall screen, <laughs> plasma display, and all, all these beautiful uh, models of what the world is like. But they're just models. The world isn't like that. It's not true. <laughs> but they can't tell the difference. And so, uh, people sometimes ask me about uh, Mao's great leap forward. You know, which was had some similarities to what we're doing with climate. It, of course, it was a disaster. Uh, You know, they built backyard steel mills so that, uh, you know, they would have, um, you know, they could defeat capitalism in the West. Uh, (laughs) It was complete nonsense. You know, what they should have done is invested in, you know, state-of-the-art centralized steel mills, which uh, was the way to produce steel. And that's what they eventually did. They simply wasted time. But one thing that was not a waste of the Great Leap Forward the Cultural Revolution was that they sent uh, urban elites out to the farm to live like peasants for a year or two, and uh, that was very salutary. That that part of the Cultural Revolution, I think, uh, was worthwhile because many of these elites learned a good lesson. You know, they were. It wasn't like Cambodia where they were executed. They eventually all came home, <laughs> but. Uh, uh, our own elites have become detached from reality. I, I don't know how to fix that actually, but um, that's a big part of the problem is that they live in the, this artificial world that isn't true. It's a world that doesn't exist except on the computer screen.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm a little dismayed that you just said that because I was just about to ask you, how do we, it's, it's fascinating that we sit here today in 2022. We have access to more information than any other society that's ever existed on this planet and more particularly access to history books where we can see that humanity has learned these lessons time and time again uh, throughout many centuries um, millennia since we've been around and it's just frightening to sit here today with all this access to information and we can point look at the great leap forward look at what happened in Nazi Germany, look at what happened in the Weimar Republic, look what happened with the Bolsheviks. And we seem to just be repeating the same exact mistakes today when we have the knowledge at our fingertips to understand that this does not end well if you continue down this path.
1: No, of course, you're right about that. But I'm optimistic, you know, I... uh... I grew up in Western North Carolina. When I go back there, I meet ordinary people, and they're very sensible people. And uh, I think there are people like that all over America who've got common sense and can see that uh, at some point this has got to stop. And uh, I believe that there are enough of them that uh, we will not uh, descend into... (laughs) The sort of craziness that occurred in Sri Lanka, or that's happening in uh, Holland today, or or Ireland. I, after all, uh, America was settled by people who wanted freedom and wanted to get away from heavy-handed governments. That's why we're here. In many cases, you know, and uh, so we we have a, a tradition that I think will help us. I, I you know, I, I don't think I'm being too optimistic. I think it really will help us. I can't see us uh, ever becoming like Western Europe. Uh, you know, I was a schoolboy in uh, Scotland, and uh, the happiest day in my life was when I set foot in America, and, uh, when I, I was in the fifth grade, and uh, there was this wonderful land of freedom and uh, equality. You know, I, you know, my Scottish family was okay; they were middle class. Uh, but they they uh, always knew uh, that uh, they were not nobility, you know. I remember a poem I used to recite, oh, oh, let us love our occupations, live upon our daily rations, bless the squire and his relations, and always know our proper stations. <laughs> so uh, that was... Uh, that was the way the old world was and still is. And uh, that's the way America has never been, and I hope never will be. <laughs>
0: uh, well, hopefully, it's conversations like this that wake people up to it because I'm happy that you're optimistic. I tend to be optimistic too, but it does trouble me a bit when you see uh, the propaganda affecting so many people so effectively. Uh, and I didn't realize that you moved over from Scotland uh, to the U.S. in fifth grade. What? uh, Tell us a little bit more about that. Why did you decide to come stateside? And you mentioned the stark difference.
1: Yeah, yeah, my my father was uh, Scottish. He had been a uh, British uh, Army doctor in India, and my mother had been a medical missionary in India. And so they met there and married. And so I was born in India. And so, uh, that was just before World War II and when the war broke out, uh, the Brits were afraid that uh, the Japanese would soon invade India. They had already taken over Singapore Burma and, uh, you know, they were poised to move into India and my father was sent to the front and he sent me and my mom home for to America, my American mother, for the duration of the war, and then we went back to India after the war was over. And after Indian independence, uh, went to my father's home in Scotland, lived with my grandmother in Edinburgh, and, uh, but it was still all bombed out. This was, you know, 48, 49, and uh, you couldn't get a job. It was very depressed, Uh, and so, My mother didn't like it very much, and uh, so we finally uh, decided to move to America. And so as I say, that was the happiest day of my life. I was very happy to come to America.
0: (laughs) did you go straight to to North Carolina?
1: North Carolina, my mom was from North Carolina, yeah. Her family's been there before the revolution, so on one hand, I am an American. The the other hand, I'm an immigrant, yeah mm
0: mm-hmm. that's a fascinating story yeah i've got i've got roots in south carolina as well well not not as well but um in the carolinas and
1: uh well, the Carolinas were always a uh, uh a, a place for the common man you know they they uh, uh were less snooty than uh, some of the other colonies <laughs> oh yes certainly that's yeah. uh yeah,
0: and that's and Yeah. So
1: I was born in Philadelphia.
0: I lived in Chicago. I've lived in New York. I lived in Charleston. Now I live in Texas, even though I'm in New Jersey right now. Yeah. It's just having lived in these metropolitan areas uh, all throughout my life, it is fascinating to observe after having uh, moved to more rural areas as well, how how the stark difference between the people who are, are living in the cities and perceive themselves to be elite and and the common man. And that's one thing I'm actually very hopeful for. Speaking of optimism is the reinvigoration of the common man. You mentioned truckers, farmers, ranchers, uh, oil and gas operators. Um, I I can really feel a tide beginning to turn in terms of uh, the sentiment uh, of the common man that people are actually toiling and, and building the modern world that we have today, beginning to say, Hey, enough is enough. We're, we're not going to let you take our farms. We're not going to let you uh, force us to shut down our oil and gas operations. Like we're, we're going to stand up and do what's right, which is continue doing what we have been doing for a couple centuries now and uh, live free. It, it seems like we've reached uh, a far end of the spectrum and the pendulum's about to swing back because yeah uh, for being completely honest it probably needs to uh, at some point uh, this decade
1: yeah i think the pendulum is will swing back i, I hope i hope it'll be uh, substantial before i die <laughs> i'd like to see it swing back yeah, i feel better about my children and grandchildren if if that happened
0: yeah no that's i think uh i'm not sure how how familiar are you with bitcoin um gener are you interested well,
1: in I vaguely know about Bitcoin and uh it it's not something that I would have time to uh look into very deeply, so I haven't taken the time to look at it. But I guess it's it's basically uh an electronic ledger that can't be falsified and uh it uh it's distributed, so you know it's uh Pretty well immune to being destroyed, so uh, I'm interested in it. But uh really, that's all the all that it goes. You know, I just don't have time to pay any more attention to it. Maybe I've described it incorrectly, but I think that's roughly right.
0: No, it was very uh, very astute um, explanation of what it is, and that's that's what I fell into the Bitcoin rabbit hole almost ten years ago now, and it's. The driving force behind my optimism for the future because that's one thing i think we need to fix is the money um we we need to get money out of the hands of the federal reserve and the treasury and back into the free market and then you can allocate capital efficiently and um on top of that bitcoin mining is very energy intensive i actually think it's a good tool uh, to fight back against a lot of this hysteria because bitcoin miners like myself what we have to do is drive our all-in price of electricity down as low as possible. And what we found and are continuing to find is that a lot of those opportunities that will afford you very low electricity costs are stranded energy plays. So one of the things I've been doing is going up and buying stranded natural gas wells that are abandoned and we're leaking methane into the atmosphere. And so we're able to go up. Uh, purchase the well, plug in a generator, combust that methane into CO2 and produce Bitcoin on the back end. So we're able to clean up those stranded wells, reduce methane leak, which the hysterics don't like, uh, and then produce sound distributed money on the back end um, to uh, to create like a free market money monetary solution um, to get away from uh, the ills of the Federal Reserve and the Treasury, which have undue influence over the monetary system. And when you have control over the money, how it's created and how it's distributed, you can really force a lot of these idiotic policies on the public.
1: Well, good for you. I, I like the sound of that. Where where do you buy these whales? It's it's the East or is it in Texas or where? Uh,
0: all over. Uh, oh, uh, all people way. are doing it all over the country. Um, yeah. Me particularly, I, I've uh, I like... Appalachia, uh, up in northern Tennessee, southern Kentucky. Uh-huh. There's a lot of these wells. Everybody's going to Texas. Um, uh-huh. And I'm deciding to go uh, everywhere about Texas, even though I live there.
1: Uh-huh. Well, um, methane, of course, is interesting. It's demonized just like CO2, but uh, as a greenhouse gas. And uh, supposedly it's a, a super greenhouse gas because per added methane molecule you get about 30 times more forcing uh, than you do per added co2 molecule but what you know the alarmists never tell you is that co2 molecules are increasing 300 times faster than methane and so the net effect is that methane is about 10% of uh, co2's forcing which is also not very large as we've discussed earlier won't make much, much difference in Methane will make about 10 times less difference than that, but I hate to see anything go to waste. So I'm glad you are using the methane from these wells to uh, do something useful.
0: Yeah, nuts. No, I've been led to believe that methane is a worse problem than CO2. I didn't know that it, uh, while it's it is-
1: about 10% of CO2. <laughs> yeah. um, so,
0: how, what, in, in your experience, what is the best strategy to get through to uh, the innocent, quote unquote, stupid people who've been duped by the opportunist. Uh, I'm sure in your time spent dedicated to this subject, you've you've had some success at uh, turning people's minds and having them realize that this isn't the the disaster and emergency that, that many are purporting it to be.
1: Well, I, I hate to say it, but I think what's going to be needed is uh, some disastrous uh, consequences from following all of the policies of the uh, eco-fanatics. So Sri Lanka gave us a little bit of a lesson, but Sri Lanka is a long way from uh, America. And the people there don't look very much like Americans. So it will not have as much influence as it should. But for example, uh, the problems in Holland now are very serious. The the Dutch government is fanatical over climate. They're driving farmers out of business. They're confiscating their land. Uh, You know, the plain English word for that is they're stealing their land. Uh, And uh, farmers don't like it. And so at some point, there will be, uh, you know, the country will become ungovernable. But there will be enough unhappy people that they will either have to start killing people, or they'll have to give up on this craziness. And uh, I think, you know, given what I know of the Dutch, uh, they'll simply give up on the craziness. I can't see them acting like the Bolsheviks or the Nazis. At least I hope they won't. And it's, it's, so, so I, I think that as Bad as as it is, I I hope. I I wish the Dutch government well. I hope they do every crazy thing that they have said they're going to do, (laughs) and that uh, the Dutch people uh, have the reaction that I think they will have. The Dutch are kind of they're the closest thing to us in terms of loving freedom. You know, they have had a long history of uh, fighting for their independence against this. Spanish Spanish Empire against the Habsburg, against the French, uh, you know, you name it. So I, I think, uh, I, I'm hopeful that the Dutch people will uh, set this right. Same thing is happening in Ireland. The Irish uh, are not reacting as strongly yet as the Dutch are, but I hope that they'll be brought around. You know, the Irish too have a long history of... Uh, exploitation by one, you know, myth after another. And uh, let's hope that they recognize that this current myth of uh, climate emergency isn't any more true than the myth of English superiority, you know, that burdened them for so long. Uh, so, you know, this the solution to this really is going to depend on the innate, common sense of people. Let's hope that it's there. I I think it's there, Uh, but I think it has an easier time in some countries like our country than it does in others where uh, there's a long history of suppression and uh, obedience to authority.
0: Yeah. It's even moving to Canada. Canada, Justin Trudeau's government just passed, uh, I don't know if it was a law or a mandate to do exactly what they're doing in holland reduce nitrogen emissions by 30 percent uh by confiscating farmland and preventing farmers from uh toiling on that land it's uh
1: well again it's it's crazy because the the issue here is uh partly methane which we already talked about and partly nitrous oxide which is uh released by farming you know uh cultivation of fields, cattle, uh, anything that has nitrogenous uh, material. And nitrous oxide is about like methane. It's about 10% of CO2. So it's really not an issue. CO2 itself is not an issue. And if you've got something like nitrous oxide, which is 10 times less effect, you know, why are we destroying the lives of farmers? Why are we... uh, uh, jeopardizing food security for the world by these crazy actions. I mean, I I have many good friends in Canada that I respect, most of them recent immigrants, but uh, I will point out that Canada got its start as the uh, refuge of the uh, uh, the loyalists to the king after the American Revolution. You know, if you had supported the king uh, in the Carolinas, for example, it really wasn't a good idea to remain after the <laughs> revolution, so you went to Canada. So these are people who've always, uh, at least initially, uh, been willing to accept uh, authority from above rather than uh, uh, manage their own lives uh, the way most Americans who were on the winning side of the American Revolution thought. So. Very few Canadians are left from that contention. So most are recent immigrants like me. I'm a half immigrant. Uh, so they're not uh, uh, they're not guilty of that. But uh, some of them would have been hanged if they hadn't gone to Canada. Should have been yeah. hanged.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, think, uh, yeah. I think there's some people here in the green movement that need to be shipped up to Canada. Yeah. <laughs> <for> <laughs> yeah. All this insanity on the world and i mean you mentioned models earlier too and that's one thing again uh, i come from an economics background sort of got dragged into this energy climate debate and that's one thing in the economic round particularly if you look at federal reserve policy a lot of what they predict or how they justify their monetary policies based on forward projecting models that uh, if you actually listen to what they said 10 years ago and the models they put out then and then cross-reference it with reality, it's way off basis in terms of uh, inflation rates uh, being one of the easiest ones to point out right now, um, uh, unemployment, whatever it may be. Uh, but that is the uh, most potent tool of the, the climate hysterics too, are, are these models. Everybody says, look at the models, we're, we're going to be underwater in 20 years. And the Earth's going to be so hot that uh, humans are going to burn up. And how it's just I, I I want to live in a world where we don't really depend on models as heavily as we do now, and particularly when it comes to the climate hysteria. It's it's always about models. And you mentioned Al Gore uh, at the beginning of this discussion, and he's been pushing the models. Um, uh, so I became cognizant of him and his pushing of the models around 2000, 2001, when he was running for president. Um, how, how bad are these models, in your opinion?
1: Well, uh, we talked about them very briefly. Uh, you know, the main thing a model is supposed to do for you is project future temperatures that are caused by increasing amounts of CO2, methane, nitrous oxide. And uh, so they've had some 20 years to show their stuff. People started making serious models in the early 90s. So that's 20, actually 30 years now that they've been uh, trying to predict. And they've all been running much too hot. They're predicting, you know, 0.3, 0.4 degrees uh, Centigrade warming per decade. The observed warming has about been about 0.1, you know, so a factor of three less than most models predict. Uh, There've been nice studies of that by uh, John Christy at the uh, University of Alabama in uh, Huntsville. And if you don't know about his work, I recommend that you look at some of uh, his writings on this. But uh, by any Criterion that works for normal science, the models would have been junked a long time ago because they don't work. You know, they're they're predicting far too much warming. You know, if you look at the warming we're seeing, a tenth of a degree per decade. You know, to you know that means by the end of this century, another eight decades, we will have warmed by 0.8 degrees centigrade, which isn't very much. You know, and uh, so. There's clearly no emergency. You can tell that by just looking at the facts. Uh, but nevertheless, when uh, policies uh, for CO2 are discussed, nobody ever looks at the facts. They look at the models. Yeah. So they say, look, it's warming at 0.3 degrees, 0.4 degrees per decade, when it's actually not. It's only warming 0.1 degree per decade. <laughs> and uh, nobody's quite sure how reliable that is because it's very very hard to measure temperatures for the whole earth these are temperature anomalies they're not actually the temperature so they're very complicated averages that are subject to lots of mischief almost all of it is designed to try and make the warming look faster than it is uh, so uh but the fact, even with all of that folded in, there, there's nothing alarming in what we're observing in sea level rise. There's nothing unusual. It's about the same as it's always been. The warming now is not much different from the warming from the year 1900 to the year uh, 1940. There was a warming similar to this one then. Um, you know, glaciers. Yeah, people talk about receding glaciers. Glaciers started to melt. Uh, around 1800. You know, that uh, is very clear in Alaska. If you get a chance to visit Alaska, you'll learn a lot about glacial melting. But most of the glaciers in Alaska were melted before 1870, you know, so long before there was much CO2 in, in the atmosphere. And so whatever was causing them to melt, it's very interesting, but it had nothing to do with CO2 because there wasn't any CO2 added to speak of at that time. So there's there's been a whole uh, myth built up. I mean, we've done this before. For example, uh, uh, there was this uh, craze over eugenics in the late 1800s and early 1900s in America and Britain, you know, that the uh, good old Anglo-Saxon race was being destroyed by all of these low IQ Italians and East European Jews and Chinese, all Indians. They're clearly low IQ. And uh, you can prove that because you give them an English test and they don't score very well on it. Of course, they can't read English. (laughs) So it was complete nonsense. It was all fabricated, you know. But they had scientific journals. It looked very very scientific. You know, all of the... uh, University presidents were behind at Princeton, Harvard, Stanford. Uh, Alexander Graham Bell was a big eugenicist. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's sort of shameful, you know, the that the elite in America, and in Britain too, it was as bad or maybe worse in Britain, you know, jumped aboard this complete nonsense. It was all a lie. And it caused great harm. You know, my mother's sick my adopted state of North Carolina, we were still sterilizing poor women, yeah, typically they were black or poor whites, you know, who couldn't defend themselves as supposedly mentally inferior as late as the 1970s, you know. It was crime. It was a crime, and uh, it was like yet, the was for it. all the best people were for it, the elite were for it. <laughs> yeah. So much for the elite. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's again, all this stuff echoes today. We have the concept of useless eaters that many uh, of the elites out of the Davos class are are uh, describing most of the people on this world, calling them useless eaters. And yeah, I mean, you talk about like Ted Turner, uh, like in more modern times, like Ted Turner, uh, I'm pretty sure Bill Gates, dad, a bunch of these people were eugenicists who <laughs> believed heavily in the Malthusian view that we need to uh, decrease the rate of population growth and even lower the population on the planet, which is completely insane. And I guess as we have five minutes to wrap up, uh, just to end on an optimistic note, like how versatile and abundant is our planet? Can it support humanity continuing to grow moving forward?
1: Well, I don't think the uh, planet has any problem with the uh, current population of the Earth. We're around 8 billion. Uh, and the growth is slowing down as uh, the third world is becoming more prosperous. The uh, If you want to control the Earth's population, the best thing you can do is make fossil fuels available to India and China and South America and Africa so people become prosperous and live uh, fulfilling lives uh, of abundance the way we do in America and Western Europe. When that happens, <clears throat> the result is always the same, that uh, the uh, birth rate goes down to replacement or less. And so if <clears throat> if the uh, elite want to control the population of the world, uh, there's one tried and true way to do that, that's to make people prosperous. <laughs> and women don't like to be bothered with so many children and and the population stabilizes. It can be a problem. You know, it's a problem in Japan now, it's a problem in Italy. It would be a problem in America, but for immigration, we'd be losing people if we didn't have immigration. So I mean, I think that's a problem we can handle, but uh, it it depends on prosperity. If you want to control populations, you have to make people prosperous. Yeah.
0: Hydrocarbons uh, have certainly made our civilization uh, prosperous. It's uh, it's crazy. I'm speaking through a mic made of petroleum oil uh, looking at you on a computer that was made of hydrocarbons to think that there's a class of people out there that want to completely rip any uh, fossil fuel production out of the hands of humanity is utter insanity. Uh, we would not be able to be doing what we're doing right now.
1: Yeah, you know, it, it is so crazy because you and I are mostly made of carbon. You know, our our you know, our our flesh. You know, our bones, uh, uh, our carbon, and uh, the uh, and we store our extra energy as hydrocarbons. You know, your your fat is a hydrocarbon. <laughs> And it's not very different from a diesel (laughs) hydrocarbon, you know, CH2, one carbon, two hydrogens, all a polymer of that. And so nature has never discovered a better energy storage uh, uh, material than hydrocarbons. And sooner or later, uh, we may run out of uh, hydrocarbons. I think we will. It'll be a long time. It's certainly not not for a century or more. But when that happens, I'm confident to predict that if humans are still around, they will make synthetic hydrocarbons because it's such a wonderful energy storage medium. It's much, much better than batteries. And so if you had uh, the same cheap energy that you use for your Bitcoin mining available inexpensively, you could make synthetic gasoline. You could make synthetic natural gas from simply uh, limestone and water. You know, the world has plenty of both. And uh, I I am sure in a few hundred years, that's uh, what will happen, that there will be a huge synthetic hydrocarbon industry and we'll use them the same way we use them today for internal combustion engines.
0: That's fascinating. I never really dove into the concept of synthetic hydrocarbons. What are, um, before we wrap up here, what are your thoughts on nuclear energy? Is that something you're excited about? Is it worthwhile? I
1: think uh, think fission energy clearly works. And, uh, you know, if you really want to avoid uh, uh, CO2 emissions, which I don't, I think CO2 emissions are good, but it, it has no CO2 emissions. But on top of that, it's, uh, you know, there are real pollutants from burning coal and natural gas. You can control them, but, you know, coal typically has a fair amount of sulfur, which you don't want spewing into the air. It has heavy metals. Uh, It usually has a little bit of mercury, for example. And so you need to get rid of all of those things, which you can do, and that is done in modern coal plants. But nuclear power emits essentially none of those because it's so carefully controlled, the entire fuel cycle, that it's probably the least polluting of any source of energy on Earth today. You know, the only thing that comes out of a nuclear plant is waste heat from uh, the cooling water. You still have to run a heat engine. And so that means you waste a fair amount of heat. Uh, One problem with nuclear power is it's you know, not as hot as you would like. And new generations of uh, nuclear reactors may be able to get around that so we can convert more of the heat into useful electrical energy. But I'm I'm pro-nuclear. You know, I I think it has a future and it will come back.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think Germany is learning uh, the hard lesson of decommissioning nuclear power plants in favor of wind as we speak. Well... We're at the top of the hour hour here, Dr. Happer. Uh, I really appreciate your time and the work that you've done throughout the many decades that you've been focused on this issue. And um, thank you for joining us and opening up about your personal story and and your thoughts on all of this. I think what you're doing is extremely important. And hopefully this message gets out uh, to uh, some of the innocent people who have been duped by the opportunists out there.
1: Thanks very much. Uh, It was lots of fun talking to you. Good luck to you and all your friends.
0: Thank you. Appreciate it. Hope you have a great rest of your day. That's all we got today, freaks. Peace and love.
1: Bye-bye.